everyone, Justin here from Eerie Earfuls. If you've been listening along, you know we're bringing this old podcast back. To prepare for our big return, we've been re-releasing our old episodes every two weeks until we catch up. We originally released these episodes in 2018 before going on hiatus, so the references are a little out of date. I'm excited to announce that this is the last of our 2018 episodes. I hope you enjoy this last episode of, uh, Eerie Earfuls Classic. And I hope you'll join us for our first completely new 2020 episode of Eerie Earfuls on Monday, July 27th. We'll see you all then. Stay scared, everyone. everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls, putting the underwoofer across the overflapper. Every two weeks, we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. Okay, let's get to today's double feature. The person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was my pick, and I chose Jaws and Tremors. So let's pop in the synopsis tape. Val McKee and Earl Bassett work as handymen in Perfection, Nevada, an isolated ex-mining town in the deserts of eastern Nevada. They eventually tire of their jobs and leave for Bixby, the next nearest town, but discover the dead body of another resident perched atop an electrical tower, clutching his 30-30 Winchester rifle. The town doctor determines that the resident died of dehydration, apparently afraid for some reason to climb down. Val and Earl later also discover the severed head of Shepherd Old Fred and become convinced that a killer is on the loose. They try to get help, but find the phone lines are dead, and the only road out of town is completely blocked by a rock slide. They go looking for a missing couple, when suddenly, a gigantic burrowing worm creature with snake-like tentacles for tongues erupts out of the ground and chases them across the desert. The chase ends when the eyeless creature violently rams itself into the concrete wall of an aqueduct and dies from the impact. Rhonda Lebec, a graduate student conducting seismology tests in the area, stumbles onto the scene and deduces from previous sound recordings that there are three other creatures in the area. Another creature finds them and gives chase, and the three become trapped overnight atop a cluster of boulders, until Rhonda uses some left-behind fence poles to make the three of them pole vault from boulder to boulder back to her truck, finally making their getaway. The worm creatures, dubbed Graboids, follow them back to perfection, forcing everyone to the town's rooftops. The two Graboids attack the building foundations, knocking over a trailer and dragging the resident underground to eat. Realizing they cannot stay any longer, Val commandeers a bulldozer and trailer, and they all flee to a nearby mountain range. The Graboid set a trap, however, creating an underground sinkhole that disables the bulldozer, forcing everyone to hurry to the safety of some nearby large boulders. They trick one Graboid into swallowing a homemade pipe bomb, blowing it up. Desperate and out of options, Val gets the last Graboid to chase him, tunnel through a cliff face, and plummet to its death. The film ends with the group returning to perfection where they call in the authorities to begin an investigation, and Earl pushes Val into approaching Rhonda romantically. During a beach party at dusk on Amity Island, New England, a young woman goes skinny dipping in the ocean. While treading water, she is violently pulled under. The next day, her remains are found on shore, and the medical examiner rules the death was due to a shark attack. Police Chief Martin Brody closes the beaches, but the mayor overrules him, fearing that the town's summer economy will be ruined. Brody reluctantly goes along until another fatal shark attack occurs shortly thereafter. When a tiger shark is caught, the mayor proclaims the beach is safe, but consulting oceanographer Matt Hooper disputes that it's the same predator, confirming this after no human remains are found inside. The mayor, however, still refuses to close the beaches, allowing only added safety precautions. 
On the 4th of July weekend, the shark enters a nearby estuary, killing a boater and causing Brody's oldest son to go into shock. Brody then convinces the mayor to hire local shark hunter, Quint. Quint, Brody, and Hooper set out to hunt the shark on Quint's boat, the Orca. They lure the shark to the surface, and Quint harpoons it with a line attached to a flotation barrel, but the shark pulls the barrel underwater and disappears. That night, the shark returns unexpectedly ramming the boat's hull and disabling the power. In the morning, Brody attempts to call the Coast Guard, but Quint smashes the radio. He harpoons another barrel into the shark, but it drags the boat backwards, swamping the deck and flooding the engine compartment. Quint then heads towards shore to draw the shark into shallower waters, but intentionally pushes the damaged engine into failing. With the orca slowly sinking, Hooper puts on scuba gear and enters the water in a shark-proof cage to lethally inject the shark using a hypodermic spear. However, it demolishes the cage before Hooper can inject it. He manages to escape while the shark attacks the boat and devours Quint. Trapped on the sinking vessel, Brody stuffs a scuba tank into the shark's mouth, climbs the crow's nest, and shoots the tank with a rifle. The resulting explosion obliterates the shark. Hooper surfaces and the film ends with he and Brody paddling back to Amity Island, clinging to the remaining barrels. All right, Brandon, so why did you pick these two movies? Well, I initially picked these two movies because of the very basic concept that one is a movie about shark attacks and the other one is basically the same thing. They're just like land sharks. Sea sharks versus land sharks. Yes. I hadn't really seen either in a very long time when I picked them, and so I thought, what a great concept to put them together. That'll be super easy, and we could do, you know, like a throwaway episode or whatever. But then, after I watched them, I realized there's a lot more to that uh, relationship than I initially thought. The main reason why both of these films work together so well is because they're both working on a very primal fear for humans, which is the fear of the unknown. And the way they do that is by not really showing you what is the thing that's attacking. The image that you create in your mind becomes more terrifying than the actual thing when it is finally revealed. So in Jaws, there's a lot through almost the the first 75% of the movie. You don't really see the shark that much. It's just like you see fins coming out of the water and you see like people going down under and then bubbles coming up and and people fighting and screaming and blood going everywhere and and you get a lot of like the shark's perspective so you get a lot of underwater shots of people's legs and you know looking up at the surface and so it builds a lot of tension and you and even when they think they've caught the shark at one point, like a big tiger shark, they quickly, especially Hooper, the scientist, very quickly realizes that there's no way this is the shark because the bite radius would have to be way bigger. So by the time you see the shark at the end of the movie, you're already pretty like tensed up and terrified and you see it and you're like, oh, fuck, even though it's not that scary, although it is kind of scary. And the same effects are used throughout Tremors to a very good effect as well. Because especially at the beginning, when the seismologist graduate student is out in the field and she's getting readings from the area and she's, you know, noticing a spike and all these uh, seismic activity. And there's like this little on the ground shot, tracking shot where it like races through the dirt and stuff. And so that's very similar to Jaws. There are other shots where the camera's racing along the ground or all you can see is like the dirt, you know, rumbling up in like a bubble where you can see them moving under the surface or like floorboards moving or there's so much of the movie where the creatures aren't actually being shown. It's just you're you're only seeing the aftermath of what they're doing. So in that way, it's very much 
playing on every human's fear of the unknown. And they're, I think they're pretty effective because Jaws more so than Tremors because Tremors is, is pretty goofy and it's pretty lighthearted, but it's a lot of fun to watch. And it's it, it can be, you know, exciting and suspenseful. And Jaws is much slower than Tremors, but the tension is definitely there. And I think it's very masterfully built throughout the whole movie. It's very slowly built until it gets like crazy when they start going to chase down the shark. That's an element that both of the movies share. Another one is this theme of individuals trying to prove themselves to other people. And they're also in the process discovering like their own self-worth. So not only do do those concepts appear in both movies, but the characters are kind of reflected in both movies as well. So you've got um, Brody, and he's the police chief. Um, He's like the hardened, tough guy police chief from New York City. He is the new police chief of Amity Island, and he has a fear of the water. I think there was some kind of, like, boating accident. According to the wiki, which may or may not be true, he nearly drowned as a kid. Okay, so pretty basic, he nearly drowned. But he has a fear of water, and he's the police chief on a town that is surrounded by water, Amity Island. So throughout the whole movie, he's trying to like protect the citizens and do what's in their best interest, while also trying to prove himself to the citizens that he is competent in his job and also cares about them and cares about their needs because they need to be open for the summer because that's when they get most of their business. So he's trying to do all these things and prove to, you know, to his wife that he can be a good, I guess, caregiver. And like trying to make sure his son has a fun childhood so that he's not always afraid of him going out in the water because that comes up in the movie also where he's every time his son goes out in the water, he's like, get out of the water. Yeah, that was interesting, especially after the uh, after one of the shark attacks. Uh, I think it was the second one where his son was sitting in a boat just docked mm-hmm. and Brody shouted at him to get out of the water. And his wife was like, honey, don't he's already never he's not in the water. He's in a boat. And it's not like I'm, I'm sure he'll never go in the water again after what happened today (laughs) and so he's like i don't want that for him and like you you kind of feel that he when she frames it that way he realizes like how how much trouble he has with this fear and he doesn't want to instill it into his son although that is humorously followed up with her flipping through the guy's great book oh shark attacks book (laughs) that he was looking through and she sees a a picture of a shark that's uh like flipping over a boat and or like biting into the side of a boat and then she starts screaming at him to get out of the water too (laughs) so you've got that whole dynamic with chief brody and you've got I think in comparison in Tremors, you've got two characters that really fit that role within the world of Tremors. And that's the characters of Val and Earl. Together, they're kind of like the Chief Brody character. So Val and Earl are Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. And um, they're basically like two handymen that have been stuck in this town, this little bitty town called Perfection. And it's like only 14 people, it says on the population sign. And, you know, their motivations are very similar. Like they're trying to prove themselves to the town, like they're worth something more than just like some dumb handymen. Although they don't always have the town's best interest, but all in all, towards the end of the movie, they generally have the town's best interest at heart. And they're trying to defend, you know, trying to save most of the people in the town that haven't already been murdered by these graboids, as they eventually called them. And they also are both Brody and Val and Earl are trying to conquer like their fear of failure because 
Chief Brody. Some people make it seem like he couldn't really make it in the big city, I guess. And so he's now the police chief at Amity Island and he thought it was going to be boring. And now there's all this exciting stuff happening and he doesn't want to fail, you know, the town and keep. he wants to keep them safe. Well, I think that, uh, I think that part of the reason, I think, because there's a moment where he's sort of muttering to himself angrily after the shark attack moment. And it, it sounds like he moved because it, it was sort of, sort of um, it's a pretty common, like, story with with cops where they like moved to a small town because they're from a big city where there was a lot of crime and they got to get out to keep their family safe type of thing that's kind mm-hmm. of what it seemed like they implied is like he he was tired from all the the muggings and you got to walk your kids to school and there there's crime everywhere and it, it seemed like he left because of crime right it, was, it wasn't that he couldn't hack it he was keeping his family safe right like it was so much so that there was no way he could make a difference as much in New York City. Plus, you know, his kids were there and he was trying to keep them safe. So he moved to a small town and then they're just as much in danger. So it's even like a bigger fear of failure because now if he fails to kill the shark or whatever, the whole island is surrounded by water. And so that's him and everybody that lives there and, you know, everything. So it could be anywhere. And Val and Earl are also have a fear of failure because they talk about it for at least the first 20 minutes of the movie about how this is not thing, the way things are supposed to be and we should have done this and we should have done that and we got to be better at planning and see we're not good at planning. That's why we only get these, you know, little jobs that don't pay much. And so <laughs> they talk about planning constantly. Yes, they do. Planning, planning, planning and how they don't do it. And so they're also dealing with, like, their own fear of failure because during, like, the inciting incidents, they're deciding themselves that they need to just pick up and move to the next town over because it's bigger and they can start a new life, you know, as, like, handymen. And so throughout this movie, they're also facing their fears of failure as well because if they fail, everybody dies, including them. So you've got those characters. Uh, You've also got... The character of Hooper in Jaws, played by Richard Dreyfus, and he's like very much the nerdy scientist guy, the underdog, and he is constantly trying to prove himself, especially in front of Quint, because Quint seems to think that he's just like some city slicker person and doesn't really understand like the instincts of sharks and stuff. And they both play off of each other very well, and they both actually end up understanding sharks very well in their behavior. And so they're a good team. But anyway, but he's he's constantly trying to prove himself like he's no, he's more than just his degree and stuff like that. And he's also trying to learn from the experience because he is an academic. And the same kind of reflected character in Tremors is the character of Rhonda. And she is a graduate student um, and she's out there studying seismology, hoping to like continue her degree and I guess like... So she can, I don't remember exactly what it is. It's like, so she can finish her paper or, you know, basically if she didn't get this seismic activity analyzed, then the whole semester was going to be shot for her. And so she's also trying to prove herself in the world of science, you know, as a woman and also trying to, you know, prove herself to the people that live around there because she's like all this seismic activity that's going on is very unusual and they're all just like ah it's probably oil digging or something like that you know some kind of explosion you know whatever and she's like no it's just really unusual i've we've never had readings like this before so she's she's very much like a hooper character from jaws and then finally you've got like quint who is like the rugged sea captain in Jaws, and he runs the boat, the Orca, 
And that's who they eventually, that's who the town eventually hires to go out and hunt the shark and kill it. And it's like $10,000 plus $200 a day, whether he kills the shark or not. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money, especially for like 1975. That's a lot of money. An interesting thing um, that uh, actually literally just occurred to me. Not only does more so Kevin Bacon's character than Fred Ward's, although you could argue that both of them kind of serve the same role, but it, mm-hmm. it's sort of Kevin Bacon's film right. in the first one. So if you're looking at Kevin Bacon as the sort of Brody of the movie, and you're looking at Burt Gummer as the, the Quint of the movie, then oh, an interesting side note is that while those characters sort of line up and then they both wind up isolated together trying to sort of face down these uh these sharks we'll just call them both sharks for the <laughs> for the sake of comparison so they they're both isolated or in the middle of the shark infested land as we'll say and both of them end up ultimately killing the shark with an explosive because mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah yeah Brody uses the exp- the the oxygen tank that they brought with them for the diving cage Mm-hmm. He throws it in the shark's mouth and shoots it, and it blows the shark up. And Kevin Bacon's character, um, Bert, had made a bunch of explosives. He'd made some sort of, like... They were, like, makeshift pipe bombs. You know? Yeah, the redneck dynamite. Where Brody uses the oxygen tank to blow up the shark, uh, Kevin Bacon uses Bert's redneck dynamite. He doesn't blow up the the graboid. They do blow up one of them, uh, mm-hmm. but it gets the, the others learn... And so that one gets smarter and learns to avoid it. It spits it back at them. But they do know that the explosion is loud enough that it, it drives them away. They have to, like, flee the the sound because it, it's too loud for their sort of weird prehistoric bat hearing. Mm-hmm. And so he uses that to drive the graboid straight out of the side of a cliff and kill it. So it's just interesting that both of them end up using explosives to kill their respective monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but yeah, there is that aspect. And also that great line in Jaws where he says, Say cheese, you son of a bitch. And can you fly, sucker? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which he cannot. (laughs) He just flies out of that cliff and then splat. But yeah, and also uh, interesting is how both of the creatures uh, featured in both movies use basically like sound and vibrations to find their prey, you know? Like uh, sharks, a lot of times they'll, they're more attracted to the smell of blood and the vibrations in the water from people splashing around. And it feels or sounds like a fish in distress, but it's the same sounds that people make when they swim and they're splashing around and stuff. They're less dependent on their eyes and more so on that sense and like smelling blood and things like that. And mm-hmm. the same thing with the tremors or with the graboids in tremors is they sense vibrations through the ground and that's how they find you. And so it's basically like impossible to escape them because where people are, everything is ground. So yeah. <laughs> either everything, everything is ground because that's where people live or in the case of Jaws, then uh, that's, it's something I noted in my notes is one of part of where the terror of Jaws comes from is that humans aren't adapted to water. We're smart, and so we figured out ways to work with the water. But when it's just us without any of our gear or anything like that in the water, we we are woefully outmatched compared to something that's that's its that's its home. Mm-hmm. Sharks are made for to just be torpedoes. 
there's no way a human can outswim one. So when you're if you're in the water, you're fucked. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, the character of Quint in Jaws is like the rugged sailor, and he's the guy that mans the orca, and he's the guy that the town eventually hires to hunt down and kill the shark. And he's, you know, he's very stubborn and thinks he knows everything, which he does know a lot. And he is a veteran of the sea and also of the Navy. And um, he is very much motivated by revenge because he was on the USS Indianapolis uh, when it sank. And uh, for those that don't know, the USS Indianapolis was the ship that carried the bomb to Hiroshima. And it was very secret, so secret that they didn't have like a warning party or an escort or anything because they did not want the Japanese to know that that's what they were doing. And they didn't actually get spotted until after they delivered the bomb. And they were, you know, I guess a day or so outside of Japan. And these Japanese submarines bombed the ship and it went down uh, within maybe an hour or so. And I guess 600 or 800 crew members and naval officers and all those people ended up stranded in the water for days. And if that wasn't bad enough, all the commotion attracted basically like a school of shark. And they just started picking off those sailors like one by one. It ended up being like 200 more men died from the shark attacks. And eventually a very small plane, uh, like a seaplane that could only hold like 30 people, finally found them and ended up rescuing people like 30 at a time, even though there was like two or 300 still left and so that really did happen in real life but that is also quint's backstory is he was on that ship and so it's very much a revenge tale for him because he talks about losing a friend and flipped his friend over and he was just eaten from the waist down and so for him it's getting revenge on sharks and the really tragic part of that story is that the shark eventually gets him too like he's the only one of the crew of the orca that gets killed by the shark and it's a very sad and that was a gruesome tragic, death. Too. Yeah, tragic moment. It's very upsetting for a lot of people, and I get it because after finding all that stuff out about him, to die that way is like probably his biggest fear because he lived in it for so many days, and that was how he ended up dying. Anyway, the shark still got his revenge like thirty, forty years later. So he's the rugged, you know, rough character that's ready to go out there and kill the shark. And reflected like that in Tremors is technically the pairing of Bert and Heather Gummer. And so they're like these doomsday prep people. They move to perfection to get off the grid because they're very anti-government. And they're like basically like the original Tea Partiers before the Tea Party was even a thing. They don't trust the government. They hoard all their guns and all this other stuff. That archetype was a lot cuter before the election. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But still used in a funny way in this movie, to where it's charming, I guess, and funny. And there's a very hilarious moment where they're, like, trying to reload these shells, and the machine that they're using is vibrating, and it attracts one of the Graboids to their basement, because that's where they have all their stuff. And this whole scene, you know, it only takes place between two walls, basically. Like, you, the camera's only showing you, like, two walls. And so they've got the guns that they took down there, and they use those, and they're like, we're going to need more firepower. And then all of a sudden, the camera pans over to this wall of guns that you haven't seen up until the thing breaks through the wall. And it's hilarious, because they just start 
pulling guns down two at a time and firing into it until eventually they get the mother gun. They call it the elephant gun, but in real life, it's actually an eight gauge shotgun that they had to like special make blank rounds for. But it is really big and heavy and it is very powerful in, uh, in real life. And that's what they ultimately use to kill it. And so they make a point in the movie that there are four of those graboid things. The first one dies because it's chasing Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward, and they end up running over this concrete drainage basin thing, and the graboid tries to run through it and slams into the concrete wall and kills itself. The second one is the one that goes into the basement of the Gummers, and they shoot it to death. The third one, they're basically like land fishing using the dynamite. And the third one takes the bait, takes the piece of dynamite and blows up. But the fourth one is the one that Kevin Bacon ultimately tricks into flying out of the cliff. And that's another interesting thing between those the, the two movies is that the, the creatures are, both of them are very intelligent uh, it, it's really clear that tr- the whenever they made Tremors, they may not have consciously been trying to specifically, but they definitely saw Jaws and were inspired by it in, in ways. Because, mm-hmm. like, um, for one, the the graboids act like uh, sharks in a lot of ways. They they they're in fact the one of the original titles to the movie uh, before they settled on Tremors was going to be Land Sharks. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it, it's interesting because the way that the shark in Jaws acts isn't like a normal shark which but like I, I didn't want to do a bunch of research on like how sharks actually act because everyone does that like yeah. it's such a common thing for people to be like well jaws isn't right because these <laughs> reasons and that's true but it's also been done a lot so i didn't do a lot of research into that but it was interesting how this shark in jaws kind of hunts them Mm-hmm. It's like it knows them specifically and who they are, and so it like watches for them. By the time they get out onto the boat in the middle of the ocean, it's basically circling them and following them around, and it knows where they are. And the graboids and trimmers do does the same thing. It just sits and waits because it knows where they are. It just, and it knows that they're there because it can hear the vibrations even when they're on the rocks. The graboid can't get to them, but it knows mm-hmm. that they're there because it can hear the talking and stuff. And so it, it just waits and it circles and waits until one of them decides to try to step down and then it goes for them. But another interesting thing is that sharks, when they don't know what something is, when they bump into something and they're unfamiliar with it, they bite it. It's called an exploratory bite. And it's literally just them testing to see what it is, which is how a lot of uh, surfers and swimmers and stuff get bitten in the first place is because they get bumped by a shark. The shark doesn't know what they are, so the shark bites them to figure out what it is. And the the graboids kind of do that too. It's a little played a little more sinister because it's like the, these underground dwelling monsters with weird snake things for a tongue. But like those snake things kind of do a similar exploratory bite. Like it mm-hmm. does a lot of like the, the snakes like come out of the ground and then sort of like it runs the snakes like along the length of a car, for example. At one point someone's hiding in a car and it's sort of like testing it to see what is this thing. Later when they're hiding in the building, the graboid does the same thing. It's like running its snake tongue along the edges of the building and like feeling of underneath the building, the, the foundation, just trying to get a sense of like what it is. And much like the shark in Jaws, the shark starts to like bump them and, and like sort of see if it can knock the thing over. It, it's smart and it shows intelligence with, I know you're up there, maybe I can knock this thing over and get to you. Mm-hmm. And the graboids start to do that too. They start to try to knock over the buildings to try to like make them collapse by by shaking them enough that either the building falls over or the people fall off of it. They also play tricks, too, 
in Jaws, the moments where like Quint is shooting the harpoons into the shark and they use those yellow barrels to like kind of, he's basically trying to not only track where it is, but keep it afloat because it can't stay down for very long with those barrels attached to it. And they keep saying that they're like, he can't stay underwater for that long with three barrels attached. And then it does. Because it's like, it's almost like the shark knows. It's like, you're an asshole. I'm going to stay underwater as much as I want. And eventually it does surface, you know, but it's much longer than they anticipate. And it's very similar in Tremors when they get one by fishing with dynamite and it blows up. And then the second one, they throw it out there and it takes it. And you're like, oh, great. All four are going to be dead. And then it spits it out back at them and it manages to make it land like on their reserve of the rest of their dynamite. So it blows up all of their dynamite except for the one stick that kevin bacon has left not only that but you're you're right in that they sort of lay traps or try to Mm -hmm. outsmart people as well well for example like the shark swims underneath the boat and literally tries to break in through the hull of the boat at one point but also Mm -hmm. uh there's a moment where in order to try to get the barrels off of it they're trying to tie the barrels and the ropes that the that are attached to the barrels to the boat and then drag the shark back to shore and the shark dives and then starts trying to drag the boat and then pops up out of the water and bites the ropes to sever them to free itself. Mm-hmm. So it's smart enough to know, oh, I'm going to do this to free myself. And it also uses the, those ropes to try to drag the boat under and make it sink. And the graboids lay a trap as well. And not only do they try to, like, obviously show intelligence by trying to, like, knock over the building, but at one point they actually, like, swim ahead of them and make like a trench like a burrow so that this thing that this tractor that they're riding on just (laughs) nosedives into a trench suddenly and then they're Mm -hmm. stuck on a rock because the thing falls over so one of the things i noticed between the two movies is that as you mentioned jaws and tremors both have these themes of like trying to prove yourself to prove your worth Specifically, though, the type of proving and worth that it seems to be demonstrating to me is this very old school masculinity, because Kevin Bacon's character and Fred Ward's character are both sort of hapless. They're not exactly not manly in the traditional sense because they're handymen, right. but they're, they're a little bit squirrely and a little bit um, like knuck- they're knuckleheads. Right. They're, they're like goof offs. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of of moments throughout the movie where they they sort of reinforce this old school masculinity thing. So like they're both tough guys who like work with their hands and they're both sort of having to like reinforce that they are manly men to each other. It's, it's like they're in a constant competition and they're always like rock, paper, scissoring. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of um, the same type of relationship between Val and Earl as there is between um, Hooper and Quint mm-hmm. because Hooper in Jaws is like this young nerd. He's a well he comes from a wealthy family which he explicitly says. He went to school to become a scientist, so he do, he deals with the ocean the same way that Quint does, but his work is more academic, it's more measured, it, it's less like tough and fierce and ferocious. And Quince is a more rough and tumble, I, uh, uh, I, I sail the sea. He's, he's almost like a pirate. They, they almost play him off as like a pirate. He, he is so much Captain Ahab that if, they had, if someone had said that he was Captain Ahab, it wouldn't have surprised me. Right down to the fact that he is chasing a great white whale shark. <laughs> In that same vein, Val and Earl have a similar relationship. Earl's older than Val. He's... A little more world-wise, they both have a tr- have trouble with like making plans and following through, 
but to an extent it feels almost like Earl is sort of hanging back for Val mm-hmm. um, they are both kind of lunkheads but there's this running gag where like they rock paper scissors and Val always loses to his older compatriot and the only the moment when he does win is whenever it's this moment of like manly sacrifice where he's going to run to go get the big tank bulldozer thing mm-hmm. that they drive so he's going to run go grab that while everyone makes a distraction and uh, he loses the the rock paper scissors thing and so he's like oh i guess that means i have to do it but because it's like manly macho save the people then then Earl's like, no, no I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm older and wiser. And Val even says, you're one of those things. And then he elbows Earl in the stomach and runs off to do it in this moment of self-sacrifice, trying to prove his worth as a man. And there's lots of moments of, like, the two men arguing over what's the right thing to do, and the woman clearly has an idea, and it's a smart idea because she is far and away smarter than both of them, but they won't listen to her because she's a little old lady. And uh, they know because they're rat-strong good men Mm. until she does the thing, and then they go, oh, well, uh, I didn't think of that. Like, the (laughs) pole vaulting from rock to rock, she's trying to explain to them what to do, and they're not listening. There's another moment later where... I rolled my eyes a little bit where the graboid like grabs onto Rhonda's leg and she has to take her pants off. And I was like, of course she has to take her pants off. Of course she does. Well, she was also wrapped in barbed wire. And so that's what it was. It was barbed wire. But like, even still, I was like, of course she has to take her pants off. Yeah. Of course that's, of course that's how they wrote this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But like you see that same thing with, uh, with Hooper and Quint where, Hooper is so nerdy and so seemingly green to Quint's rough-and-tumble Ahab-esque lifestyle that for a while he just kind of writes off Hooper's experience out of hand, even though Hooper shows that he knows how to tie knots, he knows how to sail, he knows the correct terminology. Brody, Quint is at first almost a little more ingratiated to because Brody is like the, he's, he's the, he's the sheriff, he's the chief of police. And he even like makes a show of grabbing Hooper's hands and saying, you got city hands, even though Brody also came from the city. Mm-hmm. It's only later, whenever it's at night, they've failed yet again to catch the monster, the, the shark. Suddenly Hooper and Quint start comparing scars. And once Quint realizes that he may have had softer hands because he's done that, that book work, studying work, but like he's got scars from having been bitten by sharks and uh, he had a bite on his leg where a uh, tiger shark, I think, bit through his wetsuit. And that's mm-hmm. when they learn Quint's backstory, that he had been on the USS Indianapolis. And there's a moment where Brody seems kind of emasculated, where he, like, the longer they're out on the water, the more it becomes a- apparent that Hooper, even though he was the one that was presented at first as sort of nerdy and out of place, is the one who actually almost belongs there more than Brody, because he understands sailing, he understands the sea creatures, he's right there with Quint every step of the way, even holds his own and argues with him when at first they introduce Hooper, like, local fishermen won't listen to him, he, he he's not very authoritative, Brody's like, you guys need to get off of this boat, that's too many people on that boat, deal with them, and then he goes off to help something, and then Hooper's response is to shout at the fishermen, uh, the sheriff has informed me that you have too many people on the boat. And the fishermen just kind of wave their hands at him and go, ah, get on out of here. <laughs> but once they actually get on the boat, Hooper's essential and Brody's just kind of there. He is, he's, he's stuck on chum duty where mm-hmm. he has to chum the waters. And when they're comparing scars, 
Brody even looks down at his stomach and I like it's there's this quiet moment of humor where the only scar that he apparently has is from what looks like an appendectomy <laughs> instead of like all these manly scars where I got bit here, I got cut here, I got slashed here. Oh yeah, well one time I, this guy broke my arm in a arm wrestling match and suddenly Brody is the sort of weaker one and he has to reestablish his masculinity. There's even a really funny, I don't I don't think it was intentional, it was just the framing, and I had just been thinking, there's a lot of masculinity in this, uh, in these two movies. And then as soon as I thought that, Brody climbs up to the crow's nest, and the, there are these loops. There's room for, it looks like, two people to watch from two different directions, and there's loops so you don't fall, that are like, roughly the, the circumference of a person. Mm-hmm. But the way the shot is framed, it's so looks like a cock and balls that I was like, my God, he's even climbing to ascend to the symbolic penis. In in Jaws, women are barely even mentioned besides the fact that Brody has a wife. Right. There's not a lot of mention of women. Quint goes on a really weird rant about how women nowadays are too soft, not like their grandmothers, but that's just sort of in the background to illustrate that he's colorful and crazy while right. Brody says bye to his wife. And in Tremors, the only presence of women is Reba McIntyre, who has become sort of like a woman version of Bert. <laughs> They're both for like survivalist anti-government characters. And mm-hmm. so because she's she's able to master this sort of masculine world, she's not as uh, ignored quite as much as Rhonda. Although there are a few moments where Bert gets his fifis hurt and he's all hit up and about to get mad. Mm-hmm. And she has to like walk over and rub his shoulder and say, it's all right. It's all right. Mm-hmm. I know. He thinks he knows everything. Like she has to talk old Bert down because... <laughs> Because manly men are right. Yeah. That's also Reba McIntyre's first movie role. I'm sure she appreciates it. <laughs> That's why she's been in all of the sequels. <laughs> even even, uh, even Kevin Bacon, at one point, there's a story about him collapsing on a sidewalk next to his pregnant wife and saying, I can't believe this is what my career has come to. I'm doing a movie about giant worms. But it made a bunch of money for them. Not to mention, they're both very reminiscent of classic tales like Moby Dick, which is very much man against nature, and also the old man in the sea, which I was is extremely, like, especially man against nature. And both movies, even Jaws more so because it takes place at sea, obviously, but even Tremors, to a certain extent, um, has elements of both of those stories. And so it's just interesting how it's uh, employed in a different medium, you know, where it's like land instead of sea. Uh, something you pointed out earlier was that Jaws feels very much like a slasher movie, and it really does. There's an article I was reading that was talking about how people credit Halloween as the first slasher movie. It's the first movie that sort of uh, took all the elements that had been existing in the ether from like Psycho and from Peeping Tom and such, and it coalesced them into this one movie that birthed the rest of the slasher genre. Everything else that came after that was sort of aping Halloween style to either more serious effect or to goofier effect, but Halloween is sort of considered the first proper slasher. But Jaws has that same formula, and it came out two years earlier. And this article I was reading was mm-hmm. talking about how Halloween feels almost more like Jaws on land. Michael Myers being like a, a land shark before Tremors land sharks. Uh makes more sense almost than anything else because the it starts the same way that all the slashers do with a nubile young couple specifically a woman being naughty and doing nudie things mm-hmm. and then because of that the woman gets killed 
dude in this particular instance doesn't because he passes out before he can actually do anything but the woman was the instigator she was the one who sort of urges them let's get naked and go swimming mm-hmm. and she's the one that dives headfirst out into the water while the guy kind of stumbles along goofily trying to keep up with her this sort of eve-esque character fall of man if he had followed her out there he would have died but he <laughs> didn't so he's he survived whereas tremors feels like it was inspired by jaws but it doesn't follow a slasher formula. The first person that dies weirdly kind of echoes Silver Bullet in that it's the town drunk mm-hmm. who dies um, because he gets run up a, a light pole or electrical tower mm-hmm. and he hangs out up there until he dies of dehydration because the he didn't want to go down and get eaten by a graboid. And then um, the second person that dies is an old man who's farming and just like he was hoeing the ground and gets sucked in and killed. The second person that dies in Jaws is the uh, a little boy, which mm-hmm. oh, was surprising. Did not expect them to kill a kid. Yep. I remember it happening when I was a kid, but I just forgot it was so early in the movie. So I was like, we're only like 20 minutes in. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, my point being that uh, this article almost... It kind of, it doesn't necessarily argue that like Halloween ripped off the right. the formula of Jaws, but basically Jaws is like the original slasher film, just with a very non traditional slasher. And once you take that figurative, you know, unknown force of evil and put it on land in the shape of a person, then it becomes like a true slasher film. Obviously. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Good point, Brandon. I'm so smart. So, uh, if you know the score of Jaws, obviously most people do, then you know that there's not really much that I can add um, that hasn't already been said. Um, (laughs) Other than the fact that it's... um, uh, From what I learned, I listened to the podcast uh, Inside Jaws, And everybody knows the John Williams score to Jaws and the theme to Jaws. But what I did not know was the first time like Steven Spielberg and um, John Williams had a meeting and he played the theme, Jaws theme to him. And he was like, so, yeah, what do you think? And Steven Spielberg was like, well, I think it's good, but it just seems a little goofy. I guess he he was afraid that it was going to make it campy almost. And John Williams was like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is your shark right here. This music. That's the shark. It's not the big mechanical thing that you show on screen. It's this. This is going to get it in people's heads. And Steven Spielberg was like, well, I don't know, but I have no other choice. So, yes, we'll do it. And turns out John Williams was right because it's a very iconic theme. And it is very... Uh, intimidating. I wouldn't exactly call it scary, but it is very intimidating and menacing sounding. And uh, it's very much based on the opening movement of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. In Jaws, it's very, uh, it's very primitive sounding because it's always like dun 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 dun. And it's the same thing in The Rite of Spring. It's just slower and uh, less even. It's dun, 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 dun. You know, it's very primitive sounding. (laughs) 
And um, there's also the theme that is technically the Jaws theme is that da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. That theme is at the beginning played on a tuba, but played out of normal range for a tuba. So it's really high for a tuba to play. But because he makes this interesting choice to play this really high theme on the tuba, it sounds very distorted and strange and unfamiliar, which makes it seem alien. And which is basically what Bruce the shark in Jaws is, because we don't know what kind of shark it is. All you know is it's a shark and you don't know where it is. And so it's very effective. And the same thing happens in the Rite of Spring as well, uh, especially at the very beginning, because there's this extended bassoon solo, which is a huge double reed instrument that usually is known for playing very low. And he sets the melody in an extremely high register for the bassoon that can't really play any higher. And so in that way, it sounds very strained and primitive and it sounds very beautiful, but at the same time, it just sounds odd because you don't know what the sound is and it's just foreign. And it very much sets up the mood for the entire uh, ballet of the Rite of Spring. And the same thing happens in Jaws. The high tuba melody sets up basically the whole premise for Jaws. Uh, But then there are other sections of the film. I remember you were talking about how They seemed more like campy and adventurous. And you were like, I thought this was supposed to be like a scary movie. And I get what he was going for. Um, We studied this when I was in uh, one of my graduate school courses. We were talking about how, you know, obviously music drives the action of what's going on. And we watched that entire scene where um, uh, Quint is... uh, this Quint, right? Yeah. Where Quint is like on the bow of the boat and he's getting ready to harpoon the shark and it's coming and he's like, Hopper, you got to tie on the barrel. Hopper, get the barrel tied on. And Hopper, or sorry, Hooper is down in the hull of the boat and he's trying to get the tracker so that he can track the shark for later purposes, you know? And so, you know, so it's this whole big tense exchange where you're like, the shark's coming, but he's going down there, and then he runs up there, and then he still has to tie the tracker onto the barrel, and then try tie the barrel to the harpoon, and he's like, don't wait for me, I'm gonna tie the knot, and it's this very tense moment, and it gets really tense with the music added to it, because if you watch it with no music, it is far less of a tense moment. Hurry it up now, tie it on. Hold it up, he's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Come on, Hoopa, come on, hurry up, tie it on! And then when that, there's this big, uh, we call it a sejura in music, but it's basically just a big pause where the um, barrel flies off the end of the boat and lands into the water, and then you see it run off with the shark, you know, it's attached to the shark, and then there's this huge, big, triumphant melody that's very reminiscent of, like, like a Korngold uh, score from, like, Robin Hood or something like that, or some kind of Errol Flynn adventure movie, because it's this big, victorious, trumpets-blaring victory theme. Time! I'm coming around again! 
And then when the barrels go down, it bottoms out the melody into like the cellos and double basses and becomes much more menacing. And then there's these very mocking horn and clarinet tags, especially the clarinet tag is is basically like making fun of the characters in that scene. Like, haha, you had so much hope and now that barrel's gone and you can't find the fucking shark. And so that's what he's trying to do in scenes like that. And it's a very good example of how just versatile John Williams is when scoring a film. It was funny because it felt like two different movies. It was Mm -hmm. like the beginning was very much a slasher movie or a creature feature and very much like there's this predator in the water stalking these innocent people. And then when they finally decide to do something about it and they take the boat out there, then suddenly it becomes almost like a pirate movie. And there's even a moment where like Hooper is making fun of Quint and he's like talking like a pirate, <laughs> like mocking Quint's very like workman <laughs> accent. And he's, he's like, oh, oh yes, sir. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> and it didn't really feel like a horror movie again until the shark started like smashing into mm-hmm. the boat and trying to like break in. Because sometimes it felt like a seafaring adventure. And I think that's kind of the point, too, because you're lulled into, like, a sense of safety. Like, well, as long as they're on the boat, they're fine. And then, you know, the shark starts to attack the boat, and you're like, oh, fuck, they're not just safe on the boat. Like, they have to kill this thing. And then the boat starts to sink, and then the movie just gets more tense and menacing after that because, you know, the lower it sinks, the more the shark is able to, like, jump onto pieces of the boat, which is eventually how he kills... Quint, because he jumps on the end of the boat and makes it tip forward, and then Quint, you know, slides into the mouth Or even before that, like, the the shark charging that shark cage that Mm -hmm. Hooper's in is terrifying. Oh, yeah, that too. And basically, like, rips the pulley system off of the boat, and then they have to rig up a new pulley system very quickly to try and pull up the cage, and that also breaks, but eventually they get it pulled up, and then Hooper is gone. And the cage is all torn apart. They use the fogginess of the water to super great yes. effect, too. The yeah. way they, they, like, they can't see that it's actually the shark on top of the cage that's keeping the cage from coming up. So they don't know that they're actually winching the shark up into the boat. Mm-hmm. That, that's a really great moment. And, 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 like, the way the shark swims away and Hooper's like, oh, okay. And then it, like, sneaks up behind him. It lays a trap and, like, bam, mm-hmm. rams the cage and makes him drop the harpoon. The score to Trimmers was technically written by two people. Um, It was written by Robert Folk and Ernest Troost. I'm not sure if Robert Folk actually got credit for scoring the film, even though like 30 minutes of his score is used in the film. So basically, it was a very similar thing to what happened with the movie Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, Somebody scored the movie and the executives were like, no, it's just not fitting the tone of the movie so they bring in another person to score the film and this person scores it completely differently the difference is uh with something wicked this way comes they just the whole first score and then boom they use the new one um and with this movie they actually merge the two scores together it fits the movie because the movie can be very tense and scary at times Um, But it also is hilarious and campy and goofy, and it walks that line well. And one of the ways that it's able to execute that so well is through the music, because the truest music is very Western. It's a lot of guitars and harmonicas. It's 
very, you know, country and western feeling. And that kind of matches the desert and gives you, like, sentiments of the old west and whatnot. And plus, you know, people have southern accents, which is odd in, like, Nevada, but whatever. <laughs> cool. And uh, with and folks music is... Uh, it's, it's very much ratchets up the tension and it's much more traditional because it uses violins, trumpets, and timpanis, and you know, basically like a full orchestra. It's very tense and it's for the big epic moments like the fights between the graboids and like the scene where the car gets sucked into the ground. That was a very tense scene and that's, uh, I believe, scored by Folk. They both use scores very well to set the tone for the film and that's very interesting. I think Jaws' score is better, obviously, and it's just a better executed movie. Uh I wouldn't, it's it's difficult to say that Jaws is better than Tremors in that it doesn't feel like a fair comparison, not in the way that it's like, oh, you're comparing something to Jaws, but that movie's amazing, because I would argue that Jaws has kind of a saggy middle and drags a little bit, and it seems like it, it for a while, doesn't know which narrative it wants to tell. Mm-hmm. It gets a little lost in the mix, but, I mean, it's also super well executed and super tense and definitely cemented Steven Spielberg as a master filmmaker. Yeah. But Tremors isn't trying to do that. Tremors is trying to be a B movie. Right. Tremors' heart it may it may be Land Sharks, it may be Jaws on Land, but at its heart, it's it's the like fifty foot woman. It's the like them from the night from nineteen fifty six, the like giant ant movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those doofy B movies. Not it's not trying to right. be a blockbuster. Like, super tense Land Sharks. Da-da-da-dun. Yeah. It's it's not trying to be like the Descent, where it's trying to be like a serious right. monster movie. This is definitely very much a goofy monster movie. Yeah. And you can tell that partially in ways like uh, when they first introduce Earl, he's asleep in the back of the truck. And I don't know if this was intentional or not, but he like wriggles his way out of the back of the truck and he's wrapped up in a sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. And it he sort of looks like one of the Graboids. Yeah. <laughs> Just this weird little like reference yes, to I like when you rewatch that. it and you're like, ah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about shark symbolism because I thought, hey, Sharks are used a lot because we've got things like we say we describe someone as a shark or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was curious about the symbolism of sharks. It is pretty much exactly what you expect because sharks are apex predators. They don't have like a natural predator that hunts them. They pretty uh, except us like they pretty much are at the top of their game in their environment. Mm hmm. Sharks are symbols of perfect hunting, successful hunting. They're considered a sacred animal in some native cultures. Uh, Sailors used to get shark tattoos to protect them from shark attacks. It was also believed that if a shark followed your ship, then one of you was about to die. Mm. So there are several different myths, although it all seems to still circle around the idea that the shark is like the perfect hunter. They're always feared and or respected very highly. Mm -hmm. There's not like a oh, they're misunderstood or something like that. They, 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 they are pretty much what we think they are. They are typically considered like this this fierce, violent, amazing hunter. Mm-hmm. So instead, I kind of shifted gears a little bit because that was pretty much all I could find on it. And I decided to look into shark movies, like the history of shark movies, because the first one that I could think of was Jaws. And everyone thinks of Halloween as the first slasher movie 
It's the one that sort of crystallized a lot of the ideas in the ether into a single movie that people could start using that as a template for an entire genre. But we also know that there were movies that predate Halloween that had elements of the slasher. There were the Italian giallo films, there was Psycho, there was Peeping Tom, there was When a Stranger Calls. There were all these proto-slashers that existed before Halloween came along to sort of cement all that into a recognizable formula. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre is another example of that, that same thing that sort of slightly predates, I think it predates Halloween by a couple years, uh, that had a lot of those similar ideas. So then I was curious, since Jaws is a genre unto itself, with tons and tons of of ripoffs and sequels, both shark movies and sea creature movies of a similar vein, was Jaws the first one? Did seriously no one ever come up with a killer shark movie before then? It seems like the answer is kind of yes, to an extent. Mm -hmm. So I was reading an article by the Film School Rejects for a lot of this information. H. Perry Horton wrote this article, and... The first shark movie technically goes to Jerry Hopper's The Shark Fighters from 1956. Mm. I'm going to read from the article. It's a story with echoes of the real-life tale of the USS Indianapolis about a Navy project to find a shark repellent to protect shipwrecked sailors. And then there was another movie that came out after that called Shark, starring Burt Reynolds. Mm -hmm. Although, that wasn't necessarily a shark movie per se in the way that we think of it. It was more about... A gunrunner loses his cargo near a small coastal Sudanese town, so he's stuck there. When a woman hires him to raid a sunken ship in shark-infested waters, he sees a chance to compensate for his losses. He's not the only one. Technically, it's more of like an action thriller, mm-hmm. sort of a pirate movie, but it also features uh, them trying to avoid sharks. And the reason it became titled Shark and was marketed as a killer shark type movie is because one of the stuntmen for the movie was killed because they thought that they had one of their sharks sedated and they didn't Mm. and he got eaten by the shark and the studio took that renamed the movie shark and then started using that as marketing to promote the film (laughs) which is really gross (laughs) really fucked up it's kind of like if the stunt woman who had died during Deadpool 2 if they had been like yeah go see a Deadpool 2 it killed a woman right So that came out in 1969, and then technically not a shark movie, but there was a documentary called Blue Water, White Death in 1971 that focused on great whites, directed by Peter Gimbel and James Lipscomb. And it was apparently like a pretty well-received documentary. It was released theatrically. The tagline was, the most frightening and fascinating sea adventure ever. Hmm. And so it seems like... That was part of what got Steven Spielberg possibly interested in the project, or maybe he used that as a reference. Mm -hmm. And then Jaws came out in 1976, and then the exact same year, so I'm curious if it was a rip... Some people count it as a ripoff, but there was another movie that came out, I think the exact same year, called Mako, The Jaws of Death, Hmm. which was a 1976 movie, July 1976, starring Richard Jekyll, Jekyll, and Jennifer Bishop. A man accidentally learns that he has a mysterious connection with sharks and is given a strange medallion by a shaman, becoming more and more alienated from a normal society. He develops an ability to communicate with sharks telepathically, setting out to destroy anyone who harms sharks. Uh, So people have listed that as one of the ripoffs, although I would argue it doesn't sound like Jaws in any way. So, do we get anything from, like, the 80s? Oh, yeah. There's a ton of... Like, after Jaws comes out, 
every it's like an onslaught of movies and like the the jaws sequels come out Mm -hmm. there are a bunch of other shark movies there was a 1976 movie tv movie called shark kill uh there's Tintorera, Killer Shark, which came out in 1977, and then Cyclone came out the next year, Jaws 2 came out, and then the rest of the Jaws sequels. There were also other ripoffs, like Barracuda came mm-hmm. out in 1978, Piranha came out in 1978. The earliest shark movie that I could find that slightly disagrees with the article about the 1956 movie mm-hmm. was titled White Death. Mm-hmm. It was an Australian film starring Zane Grey. He filmed it during his fishing expedition to Australia, and it marked the first time he'd played a leading role in a movie. And that's really all the information I can find about it. It's a sort of fictionalized retelling of a guy's fishing trip to Australia. Right. (laughs) It's really interesting how you you get Jaws in 1970s. That's pretty much like the quintessential shark movie. And then everything after that is like a ripoff or variation of some kind of aquatic animal seeking revenge, you know, like all the shark movies, but then also Barracuda, but then also piranhas and, you know, all these other things. Um, Manta rays and yes, eels exactly. and yeah, tons of stuff. And then finally in like 1990, it makes the progression to like land where they're like, well, what if we did the same thing, even though we've done all of that stuff with water things, but we did that on land. Yep. And uh, that's, that, that's definitely part of it. I, I, I imagine Trimmers was a combination of like, Jaws on land, also 1950s B-movies like them, Mm -hmm. and like Attack of the Crab Monsters from 1957. (laughs) Uh, That feels like the kind of thing that Tremors was also in its heart. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But also a very interesting take on, you know, like the Jaws progression, I guess, of films. Because it was like, we've done all the water things. What if we did like a 50s-style campy monster movie but also with the jaws formula so it's underground so it's i like how it fits within the timeline of taking all of these things that have already been done but putting an interesting enough spin on it to make the concept you know engaging so your your discussion of the progression was it's very interesting how that all builds up to trimmers and how the two are connected yeah, and it's interesting how it, it sort of cycles back around after that to becoming like uh, shark movie sort of research in the '90s mm-hmm. or late '90s with like Deep Blue Sea and stuff. Yep, and then and then you got um, those other there, adjacent movies like Anaconda as well. Yeah, other like nature nature type uh, nature attack movies. Um, so those sort of things resurge in the in the '90s, and then there's like a second resurgence in the 2000s with the like mid to late 2000s with Asylum, with all those really big ridiculous movies like your Sharknados, mm-hmm. your your Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, those types of things uh, have circled around, and now like shark movies are like in vogue again to the point where The Shallows came out mm-hmm. a few years ago, which was just almost like Jaws, but just one person about a woman stuck in the middle of the ocean trying to get back after being attacked by a shark and then and then you've also got your goofy movies like i think jason's is it jason statham that's in the meg yes. which is about the megalodon yes. which, which is that's a theatrical <laughs> movie coming out soon 47 meters down is a movie that came out starring mandy moore about these divers oh, that yeah. get attacked by by sharks in a in a diving cage so they're they're kind of in vogue again so everything old is new again <laughs> Okay, I think that just about does it. Thank you very much for being here today, Brandon. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com. 
Visit us on the web at eerieearfuls.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to us on CastBox and iTunes. Give us a review. It helps other people find the show, and it lets us know how we're doing. Our theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also by Kevin McLeod. Find more music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Eerie Earfuls, putting the underwoofer across the overflapper. Every two weeks... <laughs> 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 yeah, we do. <laughs> I got it at least. <laughs> 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 <laughs>